Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Richard and I interview Father Timothy Lowe about his paper, The Gospel of Matthew and the Law Interpreted for Jew and Gentile, one of several excellent papers presented in Phoenix, Arizona, at the 2015 Symposium of the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies. Father Timothy explains how the Gospel of Matthew was written not just to carry, but to impose the Torah on both Israel and the nations. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 54 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Dr. Benton and I were very fortunate to have the opportunity not just to get together with people to talk about the Bible, because what else is there in life, but to get together with people in Phoenix, Arizona. What do you think about the weather this week, Dr. Benton? Uh, You know, I know we had to come inside technically to do the podcast, but if we could do podcasts outside, I'd be willing to do that. Well, if we could just ask the Lord to stop the wind for just a minute, we could probably get away with that. But since the Lord does not listen to biblical scholars, I don't think we have a chance. 75 degree sunshine, the Lord has not graced <laughs> Minnesota with in the middle of January. So That's true. That's true. We had to go to Phoenix. I don't know what that says about us. Anyways, we're very excited. We have Father Timothy Lowe here. Father Timothy is pastor of St. St. Mary's Assumption, Albanian Orthodox Church in Worcester. In Worcester, Massachusetts, another beautifully cold but beautiful place. Father Tim, this weekend presented a paper on the Gospel of Matthew. And I think we both heard the paper, Rich. We're very excited. So welcome to the program, Father Timothy. Tell us about your paper. Well, gosh, it's 28 chapters, so it's not easy to just summarize it in a, in a few minutes here. Essentially, it's I wanted to do a literary analysis of Matthew in terms of just a general overview of what is the substance and the basic thesis of Matthew and how he presents it at the beginning and at to the very end. So someone would get just a basic understanding of, of Matthew's structure and the basic content, which I think in the end is actually quite simple. What do you mean when you say the thesis of Matthew? There is a specific central theme that runs from the beginning and that actually you see how it's interwoven in the story from his birth narrative all the way to the end on the mountain, giving his last instruction. So in that sense, it is to see how all of it is deeply connected, interwoven, and if you miss it, you miss the whole point. And this point is actually just a couple of points. So it's actually quite interesting to see how he's able to do that through a narrative story, through the parables and and through all the instructions. And then finally his uh, conclusion. So what did you discover in your research on Matthew? It's all about the law. We all know the Sermon on the Mount. We sing the Beatitudes during liturgy and so on. And that's just a snippet. But it's how he presents starting with the idea of Jesus as the Son of God. Forget about the early sort of genealogical narratives and the birth narrative. But specifically when you have the presentation of John and John is presenting this preaching of repentance and judgment is coming. So the idea that we're at this critical juncture and the narrative story. And of course, he warns the Pharisees who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bring forth uh, fruits that befit repentance. 
and then says this wonderful thing, which is sort of a very key introduction, that God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Therefore, he's completely dismissing them on the level of any sort of special sort of chosenness, that it's not about that. It's all about keeping the commandments of God and bringing forth fruit that allows you then to go through judgment and enter into the kingdom of God. So that is the beginning point. Christ comes to be baptized. And of course, John says, no, no, I must be baptized by you. And he says, let it be done to us to fulfill all righteousness. And that is the key theme. What does it mean to fulfill righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew? Because ultimately, it's all about then the law, the keeping of the law. So the theme is introduced. Christ, of course, is baptized. John submits. And there's a couple of things going on there about John submitting to do this because it's God's will. And then, of course, there's the announcement, this is my beloved son, and this is also technical. So you need to see how Matthew takes technical phrases that are connected to the Old Testament story of the giving of the law and the requirements of the law and the people of God and their relationship with God and the terms of that and how then it will be interwoven in the rest of the gospel. The function of Matthew, as I understand you, is to carry the Torah forward to the nations. Yes, but I wouldn't say just to carry it towards, but to impose it. To impose it. The idea that he's imposing, if you want to follow Jesus, we talk about the cross and following Jesus to Jerusalem, blah, 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 but ultimately the following is in the hearing and accepting his teaching. And his teaching in the Gospel of Matthew is primarily a interpretation of the commandments. So the key about the Sermon on the Mount is he's taking certain aspects, reinterpreting them or giving the correct interpretation. And then that's imposed upon the next generation as this is the teaching of the Torah, that you don't have any option. You must do these things. So that's why I mean by the word of imposing, that if you're going to follow, ultimately it's following his teaching, which leads, of course, to just the cross, but ultimately beyond at the end of Matthew 28. When you look at what Matthew is doing, I myself can't help but ask why. What is happening here in this interchange with Roman society? What do you think is going on sociologically that they're actually pushing this issue of bringing the Torah and then, to use your terminology, imposing it? on the nations. This is speculative. Of course. Because I've asked myself the same question. My assumption is, my speculation, is that it is precisely to impose upon them what is the will of God? What are the commandments of God? That somehow they're not free from them. And so that anytime you have to sort of focus on ethical, moral issues, behavior, what is required, what is the kingdom of God, how does one get to it, what is God's will, that it's precisely to counterbalance what I would say is probably just sort of crazy aberrant behavior. And the Gentiles, even though they have a Roman structured law, ultimately this is emerging from a Judaic context. And when you are connecting, let's say, with the biblical story, for those that it's not inherent in them, Paul uses the idea of being grafted onto a tree and the Gentiles, non-Jews, are being grafted upon the preachings of the law and the prophets in that history. So I think it's a way of deeply connecting, integrating them, and then see what is, what is well-pleasing to God, see, in the context of behavior and judgment. Because I think that Matthew is also imposing upon everyone the idea of judgment. Matthew More than any other gospel, I forget some scholars, 60, 70 times, there is the theme of judgment constantly in there. Uh, And then the big strike is the judgment of Jerusalem because he understands the destruction of Jerusalem as the judgment of God against their sin. So 
that serves as a warning, as a backdrop, if you're in the larger Roman context and wherever your niche is and so on, that, that there is the one God and he has his people and they must be faithful. And so judgment is always a critical part of that. When you say the judgment against Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem, can you talk about how that understanding of judgment comes out in the book of Matthew? The uh, climax in Matthew to me is chapter 27 and the trial before Pilate. Just before that, Christ is on the Mount of Olives and he's giving a private discourse to the disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And even though if it's written in the 90s, this is already a, a complete fact, but he's using it as a motivation of warning the kingdom of God shall be compared to this. There were 10 virgins, whatnot. All of that serves as a warning to the new emerging community in the larger Roman world. So the idea that it's instructional, okay, this would be my point, that Matthew, even in his parables, it specifically is instructional to the Christian community. And so even the warnings about the scribes and the Pharisees, the woes and so on, which is all about leadership, actually is a warning to the church, okay? This has happened, this is the result, watch out, your place isn't necessarily secure. That's why I love the parable about the guy who's in the wedding feast and doesn't have the right wedding garment, you see? I mean, that is a warning to the Christian community. You have been baptized, you are now a part of the community, but your place isn't secure. He can walk in and say, where is your garment? Out, you see? And, and he was already brought in as a second choice, you know? We, we know that famous sort of principle of Father Tarazi that we are God's second choice, you see, not his first. So don't think you're actually too great or too special. So put that in the context of, a, of, of arrogant Roman power and so on. And all of it is being undone by this idea of judgment has come. You have the stories of judgment, starting with certainly the Israelites in the wilderness, and then the northern tribes in First Kings, and then the second judgment of Judah in Second Kings. And now you have the consummation of judgment, which is the key point in Matthew, that it says, now is coming upon you all the righteous blood from Abel to Berechiah. For Matthew, there is this consummation of an end. There is a beginning or a continuation, but only in the person of Jesus and only in his teaching. And it is teaching that is what is going forward. Everything else has been dismantled. There is no functional historical Jerusalem, Israel, in terms of the Christian. It's all about Jesus being the Israel, the Son of God, and that's not a question of his divinity, it's a question of him being God's son, you see, and then it continues forth in the Christian community. Think about the mechanism, there's some absurdity here. You have destruction of Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and then you tell a story about the destruction of Jerusalem and why it happened, and in the story, you put all these warnings to the people up until the destruction of the temple. How strange that would be that you would write a story about the destruction of Jerusalem and in the story there's warnings all throughout of how you have to be careful of this. Mm -hmm. So how does that work? How does that function in the story? We know that the biblical text in general deconstructs everyone. Everyone gets deconstructed and you see that systematically in what we would call the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and you see the deconstruction of people so that the only one left that gets honor and glory is God. And the story of the twelve, the disciples are objectively written as pathetic, sad, questioning, not too profound, 
Peter, on one hand, he's being exalted. On the other hand, he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You know, Christ is disclosing that he's going to Jerusalem and where he's going to suffer and die and so on. And then the mother comes and says, can my two sons, you know, so you have how the inner circle, in fact, are completely deconstructed and viewed as actually pathetic, tragic figures. And in the midst of that, to counterweight that, you have all of these either gentilic figures, the Canaanite woman, the centurion, or blind people, I mean, highly symbolic people that see and understand and thus are able to move forward as followers of Jesus. So in that sense, you have this whole spectrum within which you as believers who have been baptized, you who are the community, the church, if you will, are hearing these constant stories within which you cannot help but be constantly not just challenged, but even pushed in terms of just reflection on your own place and whatnot, because ultimately the real sin is unbelief and arrogance. See, And somehow the two go together. I think because they both lead to betrayal. That's my own personal opinion, is like that, that betrayal, because mm-hmm. the disciples who received the warning ended up with the death of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem eventually, mm-hmm. right? And one can say the destruction of Jerusalem. You can be a materialist at the time and say the Romans destroyed the city. You can be theological and you can say God destroyed the city by means of the Romans. But then you can write the Gospel of Matthew and you can say God destroyed the city through the Romans because the people made a choice to disregard the warning and then it makes it into a tragedy with the technical hubris of the disciples and of the pharisees and of the romans there's hubris in every member of the caste and the hubris leads every single person to betray jesus and that betrayal pervades the entire book and then it leads to the destruction of the city so one can say well they're romans what do you expect romans are dogs of course they're going to destroy our city and then you become self-righteous we say no god did it through the romans because you human beings betrayed me and the betrayal of god by betraying the son who is the heir and that was a wonderful discussion we had today Son means heir in the Roman Empire, not cuddly little boy. It means heir. So the the only begotten son means this is your only heir. And you kill that heir, and then you've betrayed the father. I mean, what's the best way to betray a father? Kill his only son. And so this is the way that either people were killing him. I guess there was only a couple people who were killing Jesus directly, but a whole host of people who were betraying him and killing him indirectly. And so then once the temple is destroyed and you're having to speak to a group of people that are well past Paul's death, well past the death of Jesus as it's depicted in the story, saying, okay, what's going to happen next? And it's a warning against hubris for the next generation. So if we were to talk about what you mentioned in the very beginning about the thesis, when I read Matthew and I think of the thesis or when I read any story and I think, what's the thesis? Even if it's a story, it's not Aesop's fable that says, and the moral of the story is. Right. But what is it ultimately trying to teach? It's ultimately trying to teach you that you as a human being are going to tend to betray God. That is going to be your natural tendency. That's your default setting as a a human being. Exactly. That's your default setting. And so Matthew, by setting all these warnings out, shows that time and time again, yes, 
every single time he is betrayed. But isn't that like the story of the Older Testament? You know, it's funny. People see the metaphor of God, how he functions in the Old Testament, the way he brings violence and destruction. And they talk about God as an abuser, but it's the people who abuse God. And actually, if you're following the storyline, when he acts with vengeance or with wrath, it's unto instruction. But the people are always shifting their loyalties away from him. And this is what is the real tragedy in Scripture, ultimately leading up to this tragedy of their own destruction. You know, Father, during your talk, you said more than once that Matthew does not talk about a new Israel. And I thought that that was a really interesting point. Could you say something about that? Yeah, if you read Matthew closely, commentators will talk about Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount, imitating Mount Sinai. He's the new Moses. But Matthew never, never dismisses the Torah, the law, never single-handedly dismiss it as sometimes Napoline, you see, where it's the pedagogos that, that, you know, now we're under grace. He doesn't get into any of those dichotomies. There is the law of God, and the question becomes, what is the correct teaching? At the heart of that is the discussion that the law still is there. It's meant to be fulfilled. It's not being dismissed and being replaced. It's not like the new wine. Think of John's gospel and his constant introduction of a new element, that it is a continual sort of enforcement and connection with Sinai, both in the imagery of the mountain as the place where it's not where the revelation is given, like on Mount Sinai. It's where Christ continues to expand and to teach them what is the real meaning of the law, what is required. And so this law is still being imposed, but what is imposed is the specific teaching of Jesus, how he understands the law. What is the burden of the law, i.e. its requirements? My yoke is light and easy. The image of the Pharisees and, and the scribes, the yoke is heavy. And so he compares ultimately the teaching, what is required. And so even then when it comes to sort of consummating in, 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 in what we call sort of the, the Lord's Supper, the word new covenant is not used in the text, mm. if you really look closely. Because the idea is, is that what is being sealed in this is not a new covenant. He doesn't quote Jeremiah and 31 and all sort of the, I'm going to write it. He doesn't go there at all. He simply says this blood of the covenant, of which if you accept, now you're accepting again the teaching, and because that's directly what, what it was understood there in Exodus with, with Moses and, and the sp sprinkling of the blood on the people, that you have heard, you have been taught, will you accept it? So, the, so at the heart of it is accepting the teaching of Jesus. What is it that's God's will? And then the doing of it. And that's all Matthew is about at the end of the day. God has his will. He has his teaching. You must do it. Or else. You know, and it's interesting, in the spirit of the Gospel of Matthew, not one iota will be changed of the Torah, which Jesus is expositing yes. for the community. You have basically one reference, which is the law of God, mm -hmm. and the Pharisees basically fighting with Jesus over, Jesus isn't fighting, they're fighting Jesus over what's the correct application of the Torah, essentially. Exactly. And which actually makes perfect logical sense. You know, how is it that God could have a will at, you know, whatever the law, you know, say it was given, you know, within the narrative 1,500 years ago or whatnot, and all of a sudden he changes his mind. No, it has to do with what is the substance. And then he goes on to describe the love of the neighbor, mercy, justice, taking care of the poor, serving. So there's always illustrations of the teaching. But in the end, it is the teaching 
that saves the people from their sins. I didn't mention it earlier, but when Joseph is having his crisis over the Virgin Mary, and they say this child is going to save his people from their sins. We want to think some sort of legal atonement. But ultimately, I think the only thing that saves people is the teaching. Think about it. The way in which you should walk. And that's the whole Deuteronomy thing back and forth. You must walk. And that will keep you from sinning. Because if you don't know, if you're ignorant of God, ignorant of his will, then you will sin. Right. And it's really very practical because we tend to, in our churches and our culture, try to figure out what we should think so that we could be wise. And that's not what Matthew's doing at all. Matthew's saying, this is how you should act. And whether or not you're wise internally is irrelevant. If you act this way, I will make you wise. If you act this way, I will protect your step as we hear in the Psalter. It's classic scripture. How does that then relate to the ultimate crucifixion? I would say, because I am really getting away from the idea, because it's not talked about in Matthew of sacrifice. Okay, the idea of atonement. It's really not brought up as a subject at all in Matthew. What you have is Christ's teaching, manifesting the power of God through his teaching, preaching, and healing. Okay, and then as that emerges, offering it to Jerusalem, because ultimately that he goes to Jerusalem only once in Matthew. It's not like John where he comes back and forth. No, that Jerusalem is where the final offering is because it's Jerusalem. And as you know, it's, it's a consummation of rejection, betrayal, that I liked your word used earlier. And that part of that is suffering the consequences of rejection. I mentioned in the paper that John the Baptist, of course, is taken out, out of the scene in chapter 4 after the baptism because you can't have John and Jesus together working. No, because they're contiguous in the story. But then he's reintroduced later, but specifically to remind that John's problem is that he accused Herod of breaking the law. Clearly, that's the reason he gets beheaded. You see, he confronted him about marrying his brother's wife. Okay, so he ultimately got, as all prophets do, for confronting the powers that be regarding the law of God and what God wants. He got slaughtered for it. So in that sense, that's essentially what's what's happening with Jesus of Nazareth. The same thing, the sort of the betrayal. And so in that sense, the key element of course, is the Lord's Supper, where he takes his teaching and seals it. This is my body, this is my blood, and so on. So he's linking the Passover context of the Lamb of God and so on, but also Sinai and the sealing of the covenant together in that meal. And to me, ultimately, that's the point. Again, this issue, how does Christ save us? And I think the focus in Matthew isn't on the atoning blood. It is the offering of the teaching, which is the offering of itself. And it's all together in the one person, speaking only of the gospel of Matthew. Because in other gospels or other letters, it's different, okay? It's a different focus on what the Lord's Supper is, as opposed to, let's say, Paul and Corinthians and so on. But in for Matthew, it really is about the teaching. And we can see that because at the end, when we read this, the last four verses, five verses at every baptism. He takes them up to the mountain. They worship him. But notice, why would Matthew insert at the last few verses this strange thing? They're there. They're worshiping him, but some doubted. Where does this come from? Why is Matthew taking another strike at the people of God? Some doubted. And then he says, of course, all authority has been given to me, which this theme of authority runs through the whole of, of Matthew. Yes, yeah. yes. He says, go out, baptize, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. The teaching and the observing 
is the central mystery. And the baptism is the doorway that just begins, that is sort of the catechetical process of hearing and observing. And I'm with you till the end of the aid. Of course, he's with us through, through the teaching, through, the, through, through the, the keeping of the covenant, which is through the keeping of his teaching, his and, commandment. And of course, the mountain is the mountain of Sinai from which Jesus gave the Torah and the, the Sermon on the Mount. Now the mountain in Matthew is in Galilee of the nations. You know, you can, with your trust in God's instruction, move mountains. The mountain is the point of both revelation and therefore is the launching point because ultimately this teaching is for everyone. So when I say that Matthew is the law being imposed upon Jew and Gentile, Jew and non-Jew, everybody is starting all over. The only doorway to the church is through baptism. Whether you Jew, Gentile, you have to come back and start again in following this son of God, which is the Israel of God. According to Matthew, there is no other Israel. There's no historical Israel. There's no sort of all of that is just sort of it's been judged and wiped away functionally in the Gospel of Matthew. It is just now the Israel, which is Jesus, the covenant with him, which is his teaching, which is what must be kept and followed and observed. Well, I think that there is an added dimension of loyalty to this teaching. Are you going to be loyal to this teaching? You can say that the end that John faced and the end that Jesus faced were not necessarily because they confronted authorities. I think, in my personal opinion, it's secondary that they confronted authority. What's primary is that they were loyal to God's will as expressed in the teaching. Yes. And because that rule, because that teaching, because that law is naturally oppositional to earthly forces, you have a choice. Do you go then as inertia takes you away from God's will? and God's teaching, or do you stay with God's teaching? And when you talk about how Israel is wiped out, there's very interesting, you mentioned in your paper, out of Egypt I have called my son. This comes out of Hosea 11. And what's interesting in Hosea 11, as soon as he called them out of Egypt, they turned to Baal. That's what happens in Hosea. Jesus is not Israel because when he comes out of the desert, when he comes out of Sinai, when he comes out of Egypt, What's the next thing you have? You have the temptation in the wilderness, and he's not tempted. Whereas the Israelites in Exodus are immediately, oh, according please, to Hosea. Please, please, let us run back to Egypt. We loved life under Pharaoh. At least we had three square meals a day. We weren't running around being afraid of getting drowned or whatever. Yeah, and in Hosea, not only were they speaking against Moses, God's chosen, but they're choosing to speak for Baal, going after Baal. You just briefly mentioned the genealogy at the beginning, and Father and I, we did an episode about that passage. The thing that happens there is God directly intervenes in humanity's genealogy, and you have this genealogy that leads up to Joseph and stops, and then it becomes the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And so you have direct intervention of God in the bloodline of humanity, in the genealogy, then immediately you have the substitution of Jesus for Israel, because out of Egypt I have called my son. It wasn't Israel, it was Jesus now. And then you go into the temptation of the wilderness, and sure enough, he can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. So Israel is completely wiped out because of their consistent disloyalty from day one, literally. Since they left Egypt, they were disloyal, going after other gods. But here is someone who's going to be loyal to the end. How does he save us from our sins? He shows that it is possible 
to be loyal to that Torah. And now we know what the end of that looks like. Right. It says, son of Abraham, son of David. Yet, in fact, he's not connected to the line. And this is really isn't a genealogy of Jesus because it starts with the patriarch and goes down. So the question is, where is the genealogy of Jesus? And the genealogy of Jesus is his followers, you see. I mean, it's adoption all over again in the sense of what we heard today in some of the papers on Galatians and Acts. But so the idea that is at the end, there is the teaching, the followers, and those are the children of Jesus. Who all betray him for which reason? Jerusalem is destroyed in the end. Which is why Father has to keep reading Matthew in church, right? It's not as though there's an end to the story where, okay, we heard this now, we're the followers of Jesus, because that subtext of the destruction of Israel, lest our listeners fall into the trap of imagining themselves an identity that can self-identify against another identity, it's about, at the end of the day, our own deconstruction, our own falling down, our own dismantling, so that only, not even Jesus, only the Torah, which Jesus exegetes, is left standing. Yeah. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, under the kingdom of God, only those who do the will of my Father. I mean, only Matthew gives us these horrible things. There is no secure place to sit. You're always under the threat of your own, I like your word, betrayal. Well, listen, Father, this has been a fantastic Thank conversation. Thank you very much, Thanks Father. very much for your time. Wish you all the best. I'd like to congratulate you on traveling home, but we all know that all of us are going home to the frozen tundra. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> Take care. Thank okay. you very much. Thank Father. you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.